0: cases em quick hits podcast where our team of experts and educators bring you clear concise and condensed practice changing knowledge on all those em topics you may not be totally comfortable with cases the latest evidence procedural tips and tricks pitfalls to avoid and the key take-home points and references on the em cases website (sighs) quick let's get on with it first up we have swami on
1: well i won't give it away just yet about a month ago a patient presented to red with fever tachycardia altered mental status, and hypotension. Seems like a pretty straightforward sepsis case, and so we started with good sepsis care. Two peripheral IVs, a bolus of lactated ringers, some broad-spectrum antibiotics. We did cultures, we sent urine, and we obtained a chest X-ray. Unfortunately, two issues came up. The urine and chest X-ray were clean, and the patient didn't improve with fluids. It's no big deal, that happens all the time. We did a good check of the skin, looking for a soft tissue infection and rash, and didn't find anything. The abdomen was soft, but we decided to get a scan anyway, and it was clean. A rush exam didn't show much either, maybe a slightly depressed ejection fraction, but nothing crazy. We started norepinephrine, and we were ratcheting the doses up pretty quickly without much response. Pretty soon, we were up to 25 mics of norepi, and the team was asking about adding a second presser. Anytime I'm ratcheting up my vasopressors and contemplating a second one, I take a cognitive pause. What else could I be missing? There are so many things that can cause non-response depressors, and I'll include a slide in the show notes that goes through my thought process on that. The list includes things like beta blocker and calcium channel blocker overdose, anaphylaxis, hypocalcemia, and occult bleeding. In this case, two potential endocrine issues came up as well, severe hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency. We felt thyroid was unlikely based on the scenario, and we also had a normal TSH which doesn't exclude the possibility, but lessens the probability. That left us with adrenal insufficiency, an entity we don't often consider and we probably miss it from time to time. Let's start with a bit of a definition. Adrenal crisis is a life-threatening emergency due to acute deficiency of adrenocortical hormones, namely cortisol and aldosterone. And this can be fatal if not diagnosed early and treated aggressively. Classically, it'll present with hypotension, refractory to IV fluids, and vasopressors, just like our patient. And so anytime you hear that combination of hypotension refractory to IV fluids and vasopressors, think about the adrenal gland. The clinical presentation is pretty variable. Often patients can have nonspecific complaints like weakness, confusion, fever, nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, and they can develop shock and fever. Those might be the only signs of adrenal insufficiency. In patients who have known adrenal insufficiency, it can be precipitated or they can go into a crisis due to surgery, infection, burn, sepsis, trauma, metabolic or cardiovascular events, basically any stressor to the system. We want to consider the diagnosis in any patient who has known primary adrenal insufficiency, they have known pituitary disease, and in patients who have been on prolonged steroid therapy. We often see this in patients who are asthmatics or COPD patients. There are some diagnostic studies that you can get, and they might help you to get the diagnosis. These patients will often be hypoglycemic. They may have mild hyponatremia as well as mild hyperkalemia. They can have a non-anion gut metabolic acidosis. They typically will have a low bicarbonate and elevated BUN and creatinine. The problem is that none of these things are 100% specific and sensitive. And after going back to our patient, we saw some subtle abnormalities with the labs that on first pass, we didn't really pick up on. The sodium was 130, the potassium was 5.9, and the patient did have a low bicarbonate. But all of these things can be part of another process. A patient who has bad sepsis and a renal hit can have hyponatremia and can have hyperkalemia. So you really, again, have to be thinking about the disease when you're looking at the blood work. Management of adrenal insufficiency is actually fairly easy. In these sick patients, we want to get steroid replacement going early. Hydrocortisone 100 milligrams IV is the way to go. That dose of hydrocortisone is important because it also has mineralocorticoid activity, so we don't have to think about adding something like Florinef. We can continue that dosing with hydrocortisone 25 mg every 6 hours. We can also consider giving dexamethasone 4-6 to mg IV if the patient doesn't have a known adrenal insufficiency and somebody upstairs wants to do an ACTH stimulation test. But honestly, the dex doesn't have as much of that mineralocorticoid activity. We're going to treat the hypoglycemia if it's present the way that we usually do, one to two grams per kilo of D50. We can also consider an infusion of D5NS to continue to keep that sugar in the normal range as opposed to having fluctuations. And we want to frequently check finger sticks probably every one to two hours until the hypoglycemia improves and stays stable. Patients with hypotension, they should still get good sepsis care because infection is a common precipitant of adrenal crisis. Fluids and antibiotics make sense. However, the hypotension is unlikely to improve until the steroids are added in. In a lot of cases, the hypotension will respond in the first hour after you give that dose of hydrocortisone. Remember, we have to treat the hyperkalemia as we normally do, so get the ECG, see if they're having cardiac effects, and then treat appropriately. One thing we should be thinking about as well is prevention. It might be difficult to predict who's going to go into adrenal crisis, but there are some patients who we know are at high risk. If they have known adrenal disease, if they have known chronic steroid use, and they now come in with a physiologic stress, whether that be trauma, infection, surgery, and MI, it's reasonable to supplement these patients before they develop that adrenal insufficiency because you know that their body is going to be wanting more steroid production that they can't provide. All right, let's bring all of this together. Adrenal insufficiency is a life-threatening emergency. Recognize early and treat aggressively. The hallmark is hypotension refractory to IV fluids and pressors. The response to this situation shouldn't simply be to add another pressor, but to take a cognitive pause and consider other etiologies. You can add the second pressor while you're spending time thinking about those etiologies and figuring out how to treat them, but don't just start the pressor and walk away. Check the show notes for a list of things to consider, but the ones that always jump into my mind as ones that we can forget are endocrine issues like hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency, cardiogenic shock, and anaphylaxis. And we should suspect this in patients with unexplained hypotension as well as having certain risk factors. So prior glucocorticoid therapy, a history of autoimmune disease, hyperpigmentation, AIDS or tuberculosis, because this can also lead to adrenal insufficiency. And if you suspect it, treat empirically with hydrocortisone 100 milligrams IV while searching for the precipitating cause.
0: Beautifully summarized. Thank you, Swami. Next up from the EM Cases Course Feb 2020 End of Day Expert Panel, we have the wonderful Maria Ivankovic, who you probably remember from our Burn and Electrical Injuries episode. She's going to talk about antibiotic indications in treating strep throat. Now, We've discussed before on EM Cases that antibiotics in the immunocompetent adult with strep throat in North America usually is not indicated. But what about in kids? Let's hear what our super educator has to say. Most of us have heard that we shouldn't routinely be giving antibiotics for strep throat for adults anymore because the rate of rheumatic fever, which is really the only thing that we're trying to prevent with strep throat in adults, at least in Ontario, is pretty much non-existent. But then there's kids. There are some cases of rheumatic fever in kids. So the question is, should we be treating all kids with strep throat with antibiotics? Should we not be treating any of them with antibiotics? Should we be treating some of them with antibiotics?
2: So that's a great question. And it's interesting because a lot of developed countries are no longer testing and treating both adults and children. But North America has a little bit of a different view on this. So in general, I think a lot of us know that for adults these days, the number needed to treat to prevent traumatic fever for a strep throat with antibiotics is crazy high. Like we're talking in over 1 in 10,000. And the reason we used to treat was based on some old studies from the 1950s where it had a great number needed to treat of like 1 in 50 or something to reduce rheumatic fever. But these days, rheumatic fever is so rare, particularly in developed countries. We don't think it's because of treatment of antibiotics. It actually has to do with rheumatogenicity of the strains. So in a nutshell, it's kind of why we've moved away from treating with antibiotics uh, because the number needed to harm on antibiotics is something like 1 in 15. And we're talking anaphylaxis is a quarter percent and diarrhea, including C. diff. So really the downsides are much greater these days at treating strep throat. However, the Canadian Pediatric Society is going to be coming out with some guidelines on this this year where they're going to be encouraging us to still test and treat for children. And it's thought that for kids, number one, rheumatic fever is most common, age 5 to 15, um, so they're higher risk to start with rheumatic fever. But they also serve as a big reservoir for uh, group A strep in our community. So a lot of the invasive group A strep infections we see in adults can actually be linked back to a, a contact with a child with an acute pharyngitis. So part of it is just exposure as well. So we're protecting sort of our, our other patients out there as well. And then there's things like panda. so the um, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with strep. So those are like your post-strep. OCD or ticks that you get and that can be prevented with treatment of strep. So for now, in Canada, the recommendation is that we continue to test and treat our children and the treatment, just want to remind everyone, is a full 10 days of penicillin. So contrary to what you might see about other studies looking at five days, if you want eradication and you want to get rid of the group A strep, which is the goal, um, you want to do the full 10 days of penicillin or amoxil because it tastes better. So stay tuned for those official guidelines.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ivankovic. Next up, we have at ECG cases himself, Jesse McLaren giving us the lowdown on the often delayed diagnosis of subtle posterior MI on ECG. In
3: 1964, the renowned cardiologist Joseph Perloff called posterior MI, quote, one of the most commonly overlooked electrocardiographic abnormalities, end quote. Why are posterior MIs overlooked, and how have they remained so after 50 years? Posterior MIs have a distinct appearance on the 12-lead ECG, but this has never conformed to the dominant paradigm. The first paradigm dichotomized MI into Q-wave versus non-Q-wave, but as Perloff wrote, Q-waves are written because the initial portion of the QRS is directed away from the area of inert myocardium. If this inert area is electrically posterior, the initial forces will be directed anteriorly and no abnormal Q-waves will appear. The posterior MIs are not invisible. Because of these anterior forces, they produce tall anterior R-waves. In a normal ECG, the positive R-wave is smaller than the negative S-wave in right-sided leads because the right ventricle is smaller than the left. An early R-wave transition where the R-to-S ratio is equal or greater than 1 by lead V2 should alert you that something is going on. Like every ECG change, this has its own differential, including children who normally have underdeveloped left ventricles, patients with right ventricular hypertrophy or acute RV strain, abnormal conduction from right butter branch block or WPW, or a normal variant. But tall anterior R-waves can also be a sign of posterior MI, either old or new. The second, and current, paradigm dichotomizes MI into STEMI versus non-STEMI, but posterior MIs are still overlooked because they don't produce any ST elevation on the 12-lead, but they do produce a specific pattern of ST depression. In 1987, Bowdoin looked at 500 MIs of which 9% were posterior. All had horizontal ST depression, maximal in the anterior leads, and associated with upright T-waves. This pattern distinguished the ST depression of posterior MI from the ST depression of subendocardial ischemia, which is in the lateral leads and associated with T-wave inversion. But dichotomizing patients as STEMI versus non-STEMI ignored posterior MI. As Bowden warned, the arbitrary exclusion of all patients with prolonged chest pain and precordial ST segment depression appears to categorically eliminate patients with evolving posterior MI. And that's exactly what the 1999 STEMI guidelines stated. The clinician should classify patients as those with ST elevation or left bundle branch block, reperfusion indicated, and those with non-diagnostic ECGs. The non-diagnostic ECG group will include patients with non-cardiac chest symptoms, those with unstable angina, those with small MIs and those with direct posterior infarctions caused by circumflex artery occlusion. End quote. Additional leads have somewhat rescued posterior MI from being overlooked and denied reperfusion, because they can reveal ST segment elevation and therefore earn the label of STEMI. Posterior leads are an important complement to the 12 lead, but are not a substitute, as a 2001 study by Warn found. Only 53% of posterior MIs from certain flex occlusion produce ST elevation of 1 millimeter, but 94% produce ST elevation of at least half a millimeter. STEMI guidelines now call attention to ST depression of half a millimeter in the anterior leads and ST elevation of half a millimeter in the posterior leads to confirm posterior MI. But this still leaves 6% of posterior MIs that don't have any posterior elevation. So posterior leads need to be taken into context. If a patient has new and ongoing chest pain with new tall R waves and significant horizontal ST depression isolated to the anterior leads, they have posterior MI until proven otherwise, and posterior leads could be falsely negative. But if the story is unclear, if there's no previous ECG to compare R waves, if the ST depression is minimal, then posterior leads can be very helpful in identifying posterior MI. Despite developments in ECG interpretation that have been incorporated into guidelines, a paradigm focus on ST elevation still leads to posterior MIs being overlooked. In 2010, a study of 1,200 MIs, including both STEMIs and non-STEMIs, with ST depression of V1 to V4, found that a quarter had occluded arteries, and the mean time from ECG to reperfusion was 29 hours, with obviously worse outcomes. That's why Smith and Myers have proposed a new paradigm shift, occlusion MI versus non-occlusion MI. Rather than focusing only on ST elevation and dichotomizing it by millimeter criteria, this new approach integrates advances in ECG interpretation to look for other signs of occlusion. Just like new ST depression in AVL can help identify subtle inferior MI that doesn't meet STEMI criteria, new ST depression and tall R waves in the anterior leads can help identify posterior MI including those without any ST elevation on the 12 or even 15 lead. So the next time you're looking at an ECG from a patient with potentially ischemic symptoms, there may not be any ST elevation. But if there are tall R waves anteriorly, which are new and unrelated to RVH, right bottom branch block, or WPW, and if there is new ST depression isolated to the anterior leads, especially if it is horizontal and associated with upright T waves, then you could be dealing with a posterior occlusion MI visit the ECG cases post on EM cases for multiple examples of obvious and subtle posterior MI. So the next time one presents to the ED, it's not overlooked.
0: All right, the bottom line there is that you only require 0.5 millimeters of either ST depression in the anterior leads or ST elevation in the posterior leads for an ECG diagnosis of posterior MI. But this only happens in 94% of posterior MIs. That leaves 6% of patients who do not meet these criteria, hence the new paradigm of occlusion versus non-occlusion MI. With this paradigm, you need to look out for a new tall anterior R-wave. Specifically, if the RS ratio is greater than 1 in V2 and there's any ST depression in the anterior precordial leads, suspect posterior MI, perform serial ECGs to look for evolution, and have a low threshold for consulting your cardiology colleagues. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants... Metricade will build the schedule based on this information, as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. And now for our Just the Facts collaboration with Cgem, this time on DKA Clinical Pearls with special guest host, Dr. Hans Rosenberg.
4: Today, we're going to talk about diabetic ketoacidosis, and joining us is Dr. Justin Yen to talk about the latest Just the Facts article, Diagnosis and Treatment of Diabetic Ketoacidosis in the ED. So I'm going to get right to my first question. What are sort of some of the
5: characteristics that we see of these uh, patients? In terms of how patients present, people can present with GI symptoms like vomiting, abdominal pain. They can present with tachypnea, polyuria, and polydipsia or things that are severe as as, uh, loss of consciousness or decreased mental status as well.
4: Now, how do I make the diagnosis in the ED? I'm going to assume that at the very least, they have to have a high blood sugar to start off, right?
5: That's a really great question, Hans. The diagnostic criteria for DKA actually aren't very well defined, so it's really important to keep a high index of suspicion. Usually, serum pH and bicarbonate are low, and serum or urine ketones are positive, and the anion gap is typically elevated as well. Serum blood glucose, as you mentioned, it's usually increased, but there is an entity called euglycemic DKA, which can occur in specific instances. So a normal blood glucose does not preclude the diagnosis of DKA. The euglycemic DKA diagnosis occurs in specific cases such as pregnancy, those who are on sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, those with food restrictions, and those who use alcohol. The other thing is that negative urine ketones should not be used to rule out DKA because the urine tests measure the presence of acetoacetate and not beta hydroxybutyrate. Perfect. Now,
4: why do people go into DKA? What are some of the causes that I need to keep on the top of my mind when I'm assessing these patients?
5: I remember a mnemonic that I learned in med school actually of the five eyes which is which is used to remember potential DKA precipitants. So the five eyes are infection of any sort, ischemia in any form, whether it be myocardial or mesenteric or cerebral and so on, insulin omission, so somebody who doesn't take their insulin or use their insulin appropriately, intoxication either by alcohol or other drugs, and iatrogenic, so drugs or dextrose containing infusions. There are some other causes that don't fit into that mnemonic, such as a brand new diagnosis of diabetes trauma, thyrotoxicosis, and other metabolic disorders.
4: Now, you and your colleagues performed a review that allow you to elucidate some of the risk factors for poor outcomes for the patients that we see. Can you tell me what you found and especially what was surprising about these findings?
5: Absolutely, Hans. So we published a systematic review of almost 100,000 patients from eight observational studies to identify factors associated with adverse outcomes in emergency patients presenting with hyperglycemia. And the adverse outcomes we specifically looked at were an unplanned return emergency visit, hospital admission, or death. The risk factors that we found for these from the literature included age, lower income, people who lived in urban settings, presence of comorbidities, uh, high lactate, elevated creatinine, people who were on insulin, those who had had an ED hyperglycemia visit in the past month, and those who had a really high blood glucose level when they presented. I see. Now, the last question that I'm going to ask you, we don't have a
4: chance to go through the entire treatment algorithm of DKA, and that's well sort of shown in your paper. But can you tell me what are some of the keys in treating DKA? For example, the bolus of insulin, what are we doing there? High and low potassium, and then finally,
5: renal impairment patients. Right. So for the insulin, so uh, boluses of insulin are no longer recommended. IV short-acting insulin therapy should begin at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, and then adjusted based on the anion gap resolution, while avoiding hypoglycemia or hypokalemia. With respect to the potassium, um, if somebody's serum potassium is low, then 40 millimoles of uh, per liter of KCL should be given, and insulin withheld until the levels are greater than about 3.3 millimoles per liter. If potassium is normal, then 10 to 40 millimoles per liter should be given in the IV fluid. And if someone's hyperkalemic, potassium should be completely withheld unless until it's less than 5 to 5.5 millimoles per liter, and they start to urinate. With respect to the sodium bicarb issue, it's not routinely recommended for patients in DKA, but it can be considered for patients who have severe acidemia, and the literature would define severe as a serum pH less than seven, or if they're in shock.
0: That was a perfect teaser for a monster main episode. We're currently planning on DKA and HHS with Lior Summer and Melanie Baymill. I'm totally psyched for that one. Next up, we've got the best of EM docs with Britt Long. Following up on his quick hit on the clinical presentation of ovarian torsion and how variable it can be. And in this quick hit, he's going to talk about the test characteristics of imaging for ovarian torsion.
6: How many times have you cared for a female patient with lower quadrant abdominal pain and a negative CT? What should you do? Get an ultrasound? And what about the reliability of ultrasound for the diagnosis of ovarian torsion? There are a bunch of questions we face almost every shift especially in female patients with abdominal pain. Rather than focus on the problems with history and exam in patients with suspected ovarian torsion, this time I'm going to look at imaging in the patient with suspected torsion. Let's start with ultrasounds. The first problem is that ultrasound for diagnosis of ovarian torsion is not 100% reliable. Even more of a problem is the thought that normal arterial blood flow on Doppler can rule out torsion. Unfortunately, it just isn't that easy. Yes, transvaginal ultrasound is the initial test of choice if torsion is number one on your differential, but ultrasound is limited by operator variability and it doesn't look for other causes of abdominal pain. Now with ovarian torsion, lymphatic and venous obstruction occur first, followed later by arterial obstruction. Patients with intermittent torsion may have completely normal venous and arterial flow on ultrasound. So while many think Doppler flow can be used to exclude ovarian torsion, don't rely on it. Doppler findings can vary widely and can include things like decreased venous blood flow, which is a more common finding, absent arterial flow, reversed or absent vascular flow on Doppler, and abnormal grayscale appearance of the ovaries. However, Normal arterial and venous flow may be found on ultrasound in up to one-third of patients with true torsion at the time of surgery, and arterial flow is normal in up to two-thirds of patients. Your first takeaway is that you can't rely on normal Doppler flow to rule out torsion. If the ultrasound only mentions arterial flow, you have to dig deeper. What else can you use to diagnose torsion on ultrasound? The majority of cases of torsion occur in patients with abnormal ovaries. Combined ultrasound findings is probably more helpful. Rather than just focusing on blood flow, the ovary size and position are important things to look at. An ovary pushed towards the midline, an ovary more than 4 centimeters in size, and pelvic free fluid are also ultrasound findings that suggest torsion. One study from 2008 evaluated ultrasound findings in torsion. This study found that up to 54% of patients had normal arterial flow, but up to 66% had no venous flow. All patients had abnormal ovaries based on size, grayscale, or the presence of a mass. Another study from 2011 found that looking for abnormal arterial or venous blood flow, the presence of free fluid on ultrasound, or increased size of the ovary, increased the reliability of ultrasound. In fact, An ovary over 4 centimeters in size is one of the most common findings on ultrasound. Your second takeaway is that an enlarged ovary or change in ovary appearance should be discussed with a specialist, even if vascular flow on ultrasound is normal. Next, what about CT in the female patient with lower quadrant pain? CT with IV contrast can suggest torsion. Similar to ultrasound, the most common finding is an enlarged ovary. If this is found on CT and no other pathology is present, move to ultrasounds. Other CT findings that suggest torsion include an underlying ovarian lesion, lack of ovary enhancement with IV contrast, inflammatory stranding around the ovary, pelvic-free fluid surrounding the ovary, and twisting of the vascular pedicle. A twisted pedicle is known as a twisted whirlpool sign. While the whirlpool sign is essentially pathognomonic for torsion, It's rare. One study from 2009 evaluated imaging in ovarian torsion and found that all patients with OR confirmed torsion had some form of abnormality on CT, most commonly an increased size of the ovary. No patients with torsion had a completely normal abdominal pelvis CT. Another study found that all patients with ovarian torsion had an enlarged ovary with smooth borders and uterine deviation on CT. For your third takeaway, if your patient has a completely normal CT, meaning normal ovarian size, no stranding, no twisting of the vascular pedicle, and no uterine deviation, ovarian torsion is not likely. Ultrasound in this situation will probably not help. On the other hand, if you find an abnormality of CT in the pelvis, go ahead with the ultrasounds. In summary, if you're considering torsion in the female with lower quadrant abdominal pain... Don't rely on a normal Doppler to rule out torsion. Instead, look for an enlarged ovary, free fluid, abnormal ovarian appearance, or decreased venous flow. The presence of one of these findings may be due to torsion, and you should speak with the OBGYN. CT can also suggest torsion, especially with a twisted vascular pedicle. Finally, a completely normal abdominal pelvis CT can likely exclude the diagnosis of ovarian torsion.
0: Excellent stuff to know. Thanks, Dr. Long. We've got another quick hit follow-up now. This time, it's Walter Himmel chasing the quick hit he did on nystagmus a couple of episodes back with this one on the often misused and misinterpreted HINTS exam in patients with vertigo.
7: Okay, guys, we're going to talk about the HINTS test, H-A-N-T-S. The HINTS test is famous. Every resident, every staff person, they talk about the HINTS test again and again and again, and it's full of misconception. So here's what I want to talk about. When do you do the HINTS test? Well, HINTS is H-I-N-T-S. H-I is head impulse, N is nystagmus, and T-S is test of skew. When do you do it? You only do the HINTS test in patients who have continuous, Relentless, unremitting, vertigo, and nystagmus. If the person doesn't have continuous nystagmus, if the person doesn't have continuous gait instability, if the person hasn't got continuous vertigo, do not do the HINTS test. It serves no purpose. That's point number one. If you think someone's got benign, paroxysmal, positional vertigo... In plain words, they've got intermittent evoked nystagmus that stops. Don't do the Hints test. Do the Dix-Hallpike test. Do not do the Hints test. Okay, guys. So you've got somebody with continuous dizziness, continuous vertigo, continuous gait instability. What do we call that? Acute vestibular syndrome. That's when you do the Hints test. Well, let's talk about nystagmus first. Here's what you have to know. Listen to my previous rant. That's what you have to know about the stagmus. But I'll tell you right now that the nystagmus has to be continuous. And in my previous rant, I talked about central nystagmus and peripheral stagmus. So that's the N from the hints test. Now let's talk about the tests of skew, H-I-N-T-S, tests of skew. When we talk about tests of skew, we mean vertical Skew. You cover one eye, then the other eye, then the first eye, and then the other eye. And what you see is the correction in the vertical direction. If the eye corrects in the vertical direction, that's highly abnormal and it's central a hundred percent of the time. Now remember, you're probably going to see this almost never because only 7% of people with central lesions have a positive vertical test of skew. So that's a test of skew. It's vertical. The common misconception, to summarize, of a test of skew is that it's a horizontal correction. It is not a horizontal correction. A horizontal correction is often normal. It's a vertical misalignment of the eyes when you cover one and the other, and that's the test of skew. So we've got the end from the Hints test. We've got a test of skew. Now I want to talk about head impulse test. Well, in a very simple way, you quickly turn the head in one direction and watch what happens to the eyes. Well, let's talk about normal people and vertiginous people. Let's say you've got somebody who doesn't have vertigo, doesn't have nystagmus, hopefully someone like you or me. If you ask the person to focus on your nose and turn their head 15 or 20 degrees quickly in one direction or the other, their eyes should stay focused on your nose. What do we call that? Uh, we call that normal. Hopefully, your friends are normal. Hopefully, you're normal. Hopefully, your pets are normal. Their eyes will continue to look at you as you turn their head rapidly. That's a normal head impulse test. Don't bother doing it in the person not vertiginous. It's a waste of time. Now, let's talk about the vertiginous patient. And here's where we have lots of misunderstandings. If you've got a vertiginous patient, let's assume it's a peripheral Vertiginous patient and Plainwood's acute vestibular neuronitis. Their eighth cranial nerve, their vestibular nerve, is defective. In a patient with vestibular neuronitis, you ask the patient to look at your nose and you look at their eyes. As you turn their head in one direction or the other direction, here's what happens their eyes inappropriately move with their head and then they have to correct the situation by moving their eyes back towards your nose. So when you're doing the head impulse test on a person with peripheral continuous nystagmus, with peripheral vestibular neuritis, as you turn their head rapidly, their eyes move with their head. They suddenly realize it. Their eyes have to look back towards your nose, and that's called a corrective saccade. In the context of the HENCE test, which you have appropriately done in somebody with continuous dizziness. When their eyes move with their head and have to correct in the form of a corrective saccade, that means they have a peripheral lesion. Next, you've got a patient with central nystagmus, either from drugs or a stroke. And this is very tricky. When you've got someone with central nystagmus, with central acute vestibular syndrome, and you do the head impulse test, they act like a normal person. As you turn their head rapidly one direction or the other, their eyes continue to focus on your nose. And that means they have a central lesion. Now you know why you never do the hands test on a normal person who's not vertiginous. Because there's two kinds of people that when you do the head impulse test, their eyes will focus on your nose. A completely normal person Their eyes will focus on your nose. Or a person with continuous vertigo who's having a stroke. Their eyes will focus on their nose. And now you know what a central head impulse test is like. Their eyes focus on your nose. Or a peripheral head impulse test. Their eyes move with their head. And then they must have a corrective saccade. And there you go.
0: Last but certainly not least, we've got the one and only Ian Steele, no introduction required. His research group in Ottawa is about to launch the Ottawa Rules app so that all the clinical decision tools will be at your fingertips on shift. So we thought we'd talk about a couple of his most controversial rules on EM Quick Hits. Here we go. Dr. Steele, a few years back, you created this very useful tool, the Canadian CT Head Rules one of your classic clinical decision tools. We figured we'd use Quick Hits as a platform for talking about some of the nuances of some of these rules. So we'd like to start off with the CT head rule. And the two questions I find that always come up are one, patients on antiplatelet and or anticoagulant medications, do they all need CT heads when they bonk their head? And two, do all elderly, older Patients who fall from standing, who hit their head, do they need all need a CT head? And so I'll uh, I'll let you take over from here, Doctor Steele. Tell us some of the details, how it was validated, and whether it can shed light on these two questions that always come up.
8: Uh, Thanks very much, Anton. It's a pleasure to be able to talk about the Canadian CT head rule. And I notice you're already pushing my buttons by asking about patients who fall. Uh, So I'll come back to that in a second. But that is a big issue that's often uh, misunderstood by folks who are encountering older folks who've had a fall. We developed uh, this rule on about 3,000 patients then we did a prospective validation, another 3,000 patients that was published uh, in JAMA, and we subsequently uh, have done an implementation trial. The rule has undergone uh, a meta-analysis and has really, uh, I believe, stood the uh, test of time in terms of its accuracy and usefulness, but there are some misunderstandings out there in the world. Uh, Even amongst my own residents here uh, in Ottawa, I'm constantly hearing stuff where they obviously don't fully understand uh, how the rule works. So some of the areas where the rule is not applicable is minimal head injury. So If a patient falls to the ground, bumps their knee, may have scraped their eyebrow, but had no loss of consciousness, amnesia, or confusion, so no evidence of neurological insult or concussion, then they generally do not need a CT, and the rule doesn't even apply to them. So that's an important underpinning of uh, its proper application. Minor head injury as opposed to mild or minimal, is defined as symptoms associated with the GCS 13, 14, and 15. Our study was only for adults, uh, which we defined as over 16. And we had deliberately excluded patients on oral anticoagulants because we knew they were, uh, or we believed them to be at somewhat higher risk, although the evidence has not truly borne out that patients with a minor head injury and being on anticoagulants are that much higher risk of of having a bleed. Nevertheless, it seems prudent that if they're on uh, warfarin or one of the newer oral anticoagulants, that one would go to a CT. The uh, evidence for antiplatelet agents uh, is very much non-existent. When we did our study, very few patients were on antiplatelet. Platelet agents. So, I don't believe there's good evidence to push you to do a CT head on an otherwise normal patient just because they're on antiplatelet agents. Just to refresh everybody's memory, and, and again, the seven criteria are easily accessible on the Ottawa Rules app, which is uh, completely free and available on both the iOS and Android. Platforms. Five uh, high risk criteria a GCS less than 15 at two hours, a suspected open or depressed skull fracture, vomiting two or more times, age 65 and above, any sign of basal skull fracture. And the medium risk would be very prolonged amnesia greater than 30 minutes and an overtly dangerous mechanism, such as a pedestrian struck by a vehicle being ejected from a car or falling from an elevation higher than three feet. And this doesn't refer to ground-level falls. This is somebody who's up on a counter or a ladder and then falls. Going back to the age 65 criteria, the conundrum there is you start with whether the patient had a loss of consciousness, amnesia, or a confusion. And if they don't, it doesn't matter what age they are. They don't need a CT. So the age thing only comes into play if they clearly had uh, losses of consciousness, amnesia, or or confusion. And this uh, I I hear all the time from uh, residents and other folks who just automatically say everybody 65 and over needs a CT when they fall and bump their head. That is definitely not the case. So it's really great to get that off my chest. (laughs) So thanks for the platform, Anton. I like to frame it as uh, like nobody cares about the cost of a CT anymore. It's not that expensive. So that doesn't really get any traction with clinicians. But in terms of patient flow, I believe it is important because somebody's otherwise okay, they're happy to go home. I've rarely had a patient demand a CT, tell you the truth, rarely. But if you're going to send them for a CT head, They will be there minimum of another hour. They got to have it. Then you've got to recognize their back. Then you've got to go look at it yourself and read it. Then go find the patient and talk to them. So it's hard to see how that doesn't add a minimum uh, of an hour to a length of stay.
0: The other question that always seems to come up, Dr. Steele, is the one of which patients who are going for a CT head. So let's say you've put them through the clinical decision tool. And according to the clinical decision tool, they require a CT head, they go for their CT head, and then you decide, hmm, I wonder whether they have a C-spine injury as well that could be detected on a CT. If they're going to for CT already, it only takes a few extra seconds to scan their neck. Why don't we just scan their neck while we're there? What kind of clinical decision-making should we be doing in terms of whether or not to extend a CT? for someone who's getting a CT head to include their C-spine?
8: Great question, Anton, and that is one that also causes me great distress when I see my residents saying, well, that's what staff guy wanted yesterday. Every head should also have a C-spine CT as well. Uh, Those are two separate questions, and using the C-spine rule and the CT head rule independently will tell you whether they need both uh, kinds of CTs The important part here is these patients generally are going to be alert, GCS 15, they're going to be cooperative, and you can fully assess their C-spine. And I would say a minority of patients that, say, need a CT head, only a minority would also need a CT of of the C-spine. And if they're alert and they don't even have neck pain, then that's the end of the story. No imaging of the c spine is required whatsoever. And this is the majority of patients we see coming in, say, by ambulance after a car accident or a fall. They're alert and stable and cooperative. So I'm not talking about semi-conscious patients, you know, or hard to evaluate. You have to image their neck if there's any evidence of uh, injury to the head. But that is overall, in most of our emergency departments, uh, a decided minority of cases
0: all right now for the monster review first adrenal crisis the key to not missing this relatively rare ed diagnosis is to adapt a cognitive forcing strategy to think of adrenal crisis in that patient you suspect is in septic shock but who isn't responding to treatment as expected you see shock and fever may be the only signs of adrenal crisis especially in those with pre-existing adrenal insufficiency, like Addison's disease, for example, and of course, in those with a history of steroid medication use. Next, Dr. Ivankovic talked about antibiotics for kids with strep throat. While there's a trend to withhold antibiotics for adults with strep throat, the Canadian Pediatric Society will be publishing guidelines this year that will likely recommend to continue giving antibiotics in kids with strep throat. Why? Why? because of the higher incidence of rheumatic fever compared to adults, and in an effort to prevent PANDA. That's pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder. Now, what about the new paradigm of occlusion versus non-occlusion posterior MI? You only require 0.5 millimeters of either ST depression in the anterior leads or ST elevation in the posterior leads for an ECG diagnosis of posterior MI. But that's not all. You also need to look out for a new tall anterior R wave. If you got that combination, do serial ECGs to look for a more obvious posterior MI and run the story in ECG by your cardiologist to see if they're a candidate for the cath lab. Moving on, we've got DKA. The diagnostic criteria for DKA are not really that well defined, but you should look at the serum pH, the bicarb, and the serum ketones. Only sometimes you'll get a positive urine ketones, so don't hang your hat on that to rule out DKA. You won't always get hyperglycemia, and you won't always get an anion gap metabolic acidosis either. And then careful of those precipitants. Think about and treat for the five I's. Those are the DKA precipitants. Now, what about treatment of DKA? Well, the goals of initial DKA treatment are to, one, correct fluid deficits, two, Replace potassium, even when the serum K is normal. Three, treat hyperglycemia, but do not start with the bolus of insulin. And four, treat acidemia, but only if the pH is less than 7 or if the patient is in shock, although those are a little bit controversial too. We've got a nice algorithm in the show notes with all the details for you. And moving on to ovarian torsion imaging myths. There's really two myths that are really important. Myth number one, that normal arterial flow on Doppler ultrasound rules out ovarian torsion. Wrong. And myth number two, CT of the abdomen pelvis is not helpful in evaluating a suspected ovarian torsion. Wrong again, it is helpful. Now, if you remember these two myths, you'll be less likely to miss ovarian torsion. Heading into the home stretch, Walter gave us a lowdown on using the HINTS test properly. So if you're gonna use the HINTS test, use it only in those with continuous nystagmus and vertigo, and learn how to do it properly. And if you're going to use the Canadian CT head rule, use it like it was intended to be used, considering both the inclusion and exclusion criteria. And like Dr. Steele said, you don't need to scan every older patient who bonks their head, and you don't need to scan the C-spine of everyone who gets a trauma CT head. Well, That about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits. Until next time, stay safe, be strong, and together we'll get through this COVID-19 pandemic.